If you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and if you would stand for the reading of the word. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. Let the words I say be the thoughts of your heart, articulated by my voice to your people. May they, with the power of the Holy Spirit, guide us into greater understanding, deeper faith, and abundant, fruitful lives that point only to you. To the glory of the Father, the majesty of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit be given all we offer. Amen. You may be seated. There are some things that you can use an analogy to describe. Things that are otherwise hard to understand, you can take this thing or that thing that is easier to describe and help someone understand a difficult topic. In the Forrest Gump movie, we all learned what an analogy was. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. We use analogies to help us understand church things, too. We talk about sin and how it is like a captor. It holds us prisoner and keeps us away from a relationship with God. But it is not only difficult, it is heresy to develop an analogy for one particular theological concept. I am now going to take a quick break and run back and run a video. So give me one moment, please. Talk amongst yourselves.
Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick. What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 of the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick! Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with Him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. Alright, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I'm gonna stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that's probably a bit much. Alright, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. Alright, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith, and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get right and stay drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversions. <laughs> We now resume our regularly scheduled programming to continue the message. 
at the very end of that video, Patrick said, the Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Which is a very fancy way of saying, we can't say anything about the Trinity without saying a bunch of words if we want to avoid heresy. In fact, many times, preachers will say, I would preach about the Trinity, but I really don't want to commit heresy today. And that's probably the only way to completely avoid heresy when talking about the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery. We may never understand it completely until we get to glory. That's the, and even then, I'm not sure that it's going to all come together for us. I told you, we're kind of dumb. So aside from describing it with a lot of words, as Athanasius did, we can understand it a little in terms of the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus actually says how this works in John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15. Now I'm going to read it to you and then explain it a little so you understand exactly what I'm talking about. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. This is Jesus speaking. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Clear as mud, right? <laughs> Jesus is telling us that the Holy Spirit is sent from both the Son and the Father, and that the Son is sent from the Father, and that the relationship between and among them is continuous and involves both being sent and going out. Each person of the Trinity is moving and working together, and they work independently, but only in this way, according to who they are in the Godhead. They are so connected as to be inseparable, and yet so individual as to require distinction. I set this stage so that you might know what it was exactly that Isaiah saw. On one hand, what he saw was likely just a snapshot, a vision that didn't exactly equal the throne room. But on the other hand, Isaiah was overwhelmed in the presence of God with a sense of his own otherness, his own outsideness, his own sinfulness, his intrusion on someone else's space where he did not belong. 
He knew where he was and whose presence he had encountered. But his comprehension of what was happening was muddy. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. As a vision that Isaiah is seeing, he's getting images of God on a throne with his, temp his train filling up all of the space and strange creatures flying and shouting, holy, holy, holy. And then it actually has physical ramifications in the space where he's at. The door posts shake. The space fills with smoke. Isaiah is aware of his own limitations as he is in the presence of a holy God. Isaiah recognizes that he is here, but he is unworthy of being here because holiness always points out sinfulness. It always does. You know this. If you've ever visited someone who has a white carpet and white furniture, and there are no spots of any kind on there, you know, first of all, that that person has no children. And they probably still spend a ton of time cleaning and washing and getting out the dirt. Why? Because even the tiniest spot would stand out in a space that void of color. In the same way, the holiness of God highlights every unholy thing about us to the extent that we too are unworthy of standing in God's presence without his intervention. For Isaiah, this hot piece of coal touches his lips as a symbol of purification. For us, the same happens at our regeneration in Christ and later in our sanctification. God intervenes to create holiness where before there had only been sinfulness. But God doesn't stop there. Not with Isaiah and not with us. You see, Isaiah's purification has been done for a reason, and it is the invitation for him to participate in the very work of God. The beauty of the Trinity is that as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together to redeem the world, they invite us to join in the work. The sending and sent God sends us to be messengers and ambassadors. The sending and sent God asks us, invites us to join in the work. He gives this invitation to Isaiah. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? 
And who will go for us? This is an invitation to a man who has been touched by the divine, who has been spared the wretchedness of his sin, and who has seen the very God who would invite obedience in the way of holiness. And it is indeed the invitation we live with today, the invitation to live and work and love and give and be according to the holiness God has instilled in us. It is the invitation to be included in the work of the Trinity, to be sent just as the Godhead sends God. It is a wondrous mystery, and it is one that is as real for us as it was for Isaiah, who stood in a shaking building and responded as we all can, as hopefully we all want to. And I said, here am I, send me. As we celebrate communion this morning, we do so remembering that every instance of participating at the table of God is a renewed invitation and sending. We are invited to participate, and we are sent to be holy men and women of God in the world where we are. May you always respond with, here am I, send me.